0: The scripture lesson this morning can be found in uh, John 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, it can be found in your pew, pew bowels on page 949. I'll be reading this morning from the NIV version. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This, mean, this word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing.
1: Hey, good morning. Try that again. Good morning. I uh, am very excited to be able to speak to you today. And um, I am so glad that all of you are here. We've got a lot of guests in the audience today and we're thankful you're here as well. Um, I hope everyone's had a great week and happy Father's Day. Hope you're excited to be here today as we worship the God who is responsible for giving us every good thing that we have in our lives. And we do have a lot to be thankful for. Uh, the last couple of weeks, there's, there's been a lot going on here at this congregation, and there's been a lot of, been real busy, uh, but there's been a lot of good going on. A couple of weeks ago, we had a wonderful week of church camp, um, at a, and, and what a way to begin our summer. We, uh, we took a, somewhere around 175 people to a place called Western Kentucky Youth Camp in Marion, Kentucky, and our theme was Rhinos Are Us, or if you say it real fast, rhinoceros, and uh, we talked about Why we want to be like this magnificent beast. Why we want to be like the rhinoceros. Um, There's a lot of lessons that we talked about that we can learn from them. For instance, uh, rhinos are really great listeners. They have an incredible sense of hearing. And uh, they can hear things that the human ear can't hear. And we talked about how we want to be so in tune with God that we we hear what he has to say. Unlike a lot of people in the world might not hear what God has to say. Uh, We talked about the rhino's horn. Uh, a lot, not, not a lot of people know this, but the horn of the rhino is made of, of matted hair. That's kind of weird, right? But we talked about how the reason that it's so strong is because all of those hairs are kind of matted together. There's something powerful, and they come together, and they make something strong. And how we need to be like that in the church, we need to be like that as Christians. Rhinos are like the only four-legged mammal... That can't move backwards. And that's the other thing we talked about. We, we kind of liken that to the Apostle Paul when he talks about how he wants to forget the things that are past and, and move forward. And we talked about how as Christians we want to be people that, that move forward. We talked about how, uh, how uh, rhinos, they have terrible eyesight. They don't see obstacles really. They can charge. They're kind of a reckless animal. They run 35 miles per hour. They can't see very well. And so we talked about how, as Christians, we want to be people that don't see obstacles, but see opportunities. And how we we just want to kind of charge through life that way. And when something comes along, we want to just charge through it. And then finally, uh, the last day of camp, we talked about how a group of rhinos, which by the way is called a crash. I love that. A crash of rhinos protects each other. And when they have a young baby rhino, I think you call them a calf, when you have a, a baby calf... That rhino is, is not allowed, really, to be on its own until it's three years old. And whenever a predator comes, they literally surround that rhinoceros. And whenever danger is coming their way, that's how they protect their own. And as Christians, we need to look out for one another and protect each other, too. And so that's what we talked about during the week. And, and we rejoice with those... And, with those individuals and with those families who've been baptized in the last week, who had family members who've been baptized in the last week, uh, Becca Bazile, Kim Bazile, Brian Buckner, Elizabeth Fuller, Evie Hampton, Jonathan Huddleston, and Brayton Williams. I'm sorry, Justin Huddleston. I said Jonathan. Uh, also, we rejoice with, uh, with Becca Worley, who, was, uh, who came forward one night at camp asking for prayers and, uh, in her Christian walk, and it was just a phenomenal week. One more thing about camp real quick real quick, I had the most incredible staff that I could ever ask for. Um, Phil was there. I, uh, I had an incredible staff, and um, if you 've ever served uh, on staff, you know that that um, how important that it is to the week and so what I wanted to do, if this is okay with you guys, if you are at camp serving on staff, if you would just stand up, I just want to recognize anybody who was at camp serving on staff, and I just want everybody to look around and see the great work that I had to work with, just the great people. And thank you guys so much for the work that you did, and I hope you'll make a point to find these people and, and thank them for the way that they gave up a week uh, of their summer to be with the kids here at this congregation. Also understand that we had a very successful stateside mission, uh, stateside mission trip in Owenton, Kentucky. About 25 individuals from this congregation made that trip and knocked on hundreds of doors throughout that county. And... Um, helping to promote a gospel meeting. Think about this. This is really neat. There's only one church of Christ in the entire county. That church had its first worship service this past Sunday morning while our team was down there. God opened some doors and we praise Him because during the week, as a result of the Bible studies that have been set up, seven people were baptized into Christ. Pretty cool to think about that that church was planted with a husband and wife, the preacher and his wife, and throughout one week they added seven members to their membership. I know that several more Bible studies will continue to be set up and, and even more seeds will be planted as a result of the things that were done there this past week. We're thankful for Mike Kibby's leadership and uh, planning that great trip and making it a reality. So how cool is this? The last 14 days, 14 souls have been added to the family of God. God is good, amen? He's good. And finally, a team of about 25 people are in Hattiesburg, Mississippi for our teen mission trip that's going on this week. And big plans have been made to reach out to that very large city. And the church there in Hattiesburg, Kensington Woods Church of Christ, has has done a lot there to promote this. They're going to knock hundreds of doors trying to get more Bible studies set up. And our own David Shannon, and that's the reason you see me today, David Shannon is there holding the gospel meeting for the week. And I know that that will be a a tremendous blessing to that congregation. The group left Friday morning at about 9.30. Uh, Lord willing, they'll be back Thursday evening of this week, and we look forward to hearing about the, their efforts as well, that, that trip. And we definitely appreciate Randy Duke's leadership in organizing that trip. It was World War II. At 5.30 a.m. on on May the 10th, 1940, Nazi Germany began a massive attack against Holland Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. The United States hadn't yet joined the war and the enemy was winning and things weren't looking good for the good guys. German tanks staged a surprise attack on the Allied armies in Belgium and were plowing through the Allies. The Battle of Dunkirk was underway and it was Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Britain, who put it this way, the whole root and core and brain of the British army had been stranded at Dunkirk. ...and seemed about to to perish or be captured. Things looked bleak for the Allies. And as the Nazis marched onward, conquering as they went... ...the British forces were, were with their backs against the wall. They were on the verge of being wiped out. And the Nazis were closing in. But a secret plan was underway to rescue the troops. Winston Churchill had ordered virtually every kind of boat that he could find to evacuate the troops safely back to Britain's shores. And over the next nine days, Royal Navy ships and thousands of local fishing boats of every shape and size were able to evacuate 338,000 troops from the coastline. It was called the miracle at Dunkirk. And if not for that evacuation, who knows how, how history would have been written. It was a brilliantly executed plan. But even so, after just a few weeks of battle... Hitler's armies had conquered Holland, Luxembourg, and Belgium. Paris fell on June 14th, and three days later, the French requested a treaty. Things looked bleak for the Allies fighting the Nazis. The following day, June the 18th, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill spoke to the House of Commons about the disastrous turn of events in Europe amid the stark realization that Britain now stood alone against the seemingly unstoppable might of Hitler's military machine. He spoke these words before the House of Commons that day. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we've ever known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new, dark age made more sinister And perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties. And so bear ourselves. That if the British Empire and its commonwealth. Last for a thousand years. Men will still say. This was their finest hour. This was their finest hour. Their chance to shine. Their finest hour. I think about Olympic athletes. These people who train and train and train and their chance to win a gold medal comes once every four years. To even make it to the Olympics is virtually impossible because these men and women train and train and train. And if you're so lucky to even qualify to be in the Olympics, that's one thing. And they train and train. And whether they're a gymnast or a weightlifter or a skier, they're crazy about their diet. They're crazy about the foods that they, they eat and how much sleep that they get and about the amount of hours that they put into this training. And, and day after day, they put themselves through this. Why? For one hour. For one chance to shine. One moment to win the gold. Because you miss that opportunity. You blow it. Because after, after the Olympics are over. So is your moment. We don't see a lot of Olympians come back. Every now and then we do. Most of their names will disappear, and four years later, though, you won't remember them. But we do have names like Michael Phelps, Hussein Bolt, Sean White, Mary Lou Retton, Carl Lewis, Mark Spitz, Wilma Rudolph. Yes, most names will disappear, but the ones that are remembered are the ones that that shined in the moments that they prepared for all of their lives. For that one hour, their finest hour. In the New Testament, there's a phrase that we see Jesus using over and over again in his language. Let me show it to you. John chapter 2 verse 4. Jesus says to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. John 7 verse 20. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on Him, for His hour had not yet come. John twelve twenty three, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Over and over again, what phrase do you see? Jesus has one hour on his mind. He knew that there's an hour coming with his name on it. It was his hour. It was the hour for which he came into this world. It would be his finest hour. Look with me at John 2. Chapter 12, verse 27. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew that his whole life was building up to this moment. He knew that, that his whole life was, was in this hour. He says, for this purpose I came to this hour, but remember Jesus is human. Notice the first thing he says, my soul is troubled. I'll say it was. He knew what he was about to have to go through. Can you even imagine what it must have been like to think about that? To know that you were only minutes away from being crucified. To know that, that everything and, and every purpose that you came for and, and everyone in the universe, in the history of, of man and in the future was riding on this hour, everything depended on the way that he conducted himself, the way that he handled this hour. Just think about that for a minute. What if Jesus had lived this perfect life, had done all of these miracles, had touched all of these lives, yet he got to the cross, and he didn't go through with it? Or he got to the cross and he he cursed God, He'd lived this this complete and perfect life all up to the last second. He could have called 10,000 angels and changed the course of history. But he knew how important that this hour was. And he knew that everything he had done was to prepare for this moment. He says at the end of verse 27, For this purpose, I came to this hour. This hour was his purpose. You see, this hour was, was bigger than the Olympic stage. It was even more important than World War II. It was his finest hour. But it was mankind's darkest hour. Look with me for a moment at Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Luke twenty three forty four. I want you to see what God does here. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. It was the darkest hour in the history of the earth. Man crucified, the Son of God. What does God do? He literally paints the scene black. He pulls down the shades. It's cloaked in darkness. The shades are down and and darkness covers the earth. Everything goes black. And all of creation is dressed for a funeral. For three hours, the Bible says, darkness covered all the earth. The sun was darkened. Wow. The sun was darkened? How did that work? I think that about an eclipse... You know, when the sun literally kind of disappears from our sight for just a few seconds or minutes. And this one lasted three hours. It was man's darkest hour. The deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun. Let me ask you a personal question. What would you say if I were to ask you about your darkest hour? And to think about... That time in your life, I'm talking about that time when, when you just felt emptiness. Maybe you just felt nothing at all. You felt empty. You felt numb, like nothing in this world mattered at all. And to think about your relationship with God, what relationship with God? It just isn't there. But when you finally do allow yourself to feel something, all you feel is hopeless. All you feel is helpless. Alone. Alone. You feel like a dead man walking. When you think about your darkest hour, you think about something that you've done that if anyone ever found out about it, they wouldn't look at you the same way. Your darkest hour is a time that you're ashamed of. And and let's be honest, most people aren't going to walk up up to you and say, hey, um, let's talk about the worst struggles that you've ever had. Your darkest hour. Maybe there's somebody in this room this morning and you're thinking to yourself, my darkest hour is now. You've described it to a T. I'm really struggling right now because Satan's got me by the throat and he's choking the life and the joy and the peace right out of me. Maybe you're thinking, I need someone to help me. What you really need is someone to save you. What you really need is a Savior. What about your darkest hour? Or what if we could ask different individuals in God's Word about their darkest hour? What about David, the man after God's own heart, what would he say about his darkest hour? Maybe he'd mention the sin surrounding Bathsheba and, and how his heart turned away from God and how he had Uriah murdered on the front lines of battle and how the baby that Bathsheba and David had from their affair died. That's a dark time in his life. How about Peter? I bet Peter's darkest hour came when he denied knowing who Jesus was. How about Judas? Talk about your darkest hour. Judas played a key role in the hour that Jesus kept talking about. In a way, Judas was the one who who turned over the hourglass. Judas is the one who set that plan into motion. He started the stopwatch. He got the clock ticking. It was the darkest hour that the world had ever seen. But you might say Judas's darkest hour came when he took his own life. He could have been forgiven, which, by the way, is, uh, is incredible to think about. Judas could have been forgiven... If Judas could have been forgiven, so can we. It doesn't matter how down in the dumps we are. It doesn't matter how terrible that we feel. If if Judas could be forgiven, so can we. Whatever sins you've committed, you didn't sell the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. God can forgive you. Our darkest hours are those terrible times that we don't like to think about. There are those times when we did something awful. And I don't know exactly how that hour looked for you, but no matter who you are, I can guarantee you this. Our darkest hours come when we are separated from God. Our darkest hours come when we're separated from God. Any hour spent away from God is our darkest hour. And not only does that include every terrible thing that that you've thought of, but that includes the sin that you don't even think about being a big deal. Because every sin that we commit separates us from god and any hour spent away from god is our darkest hour ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 but god who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved listen it's no coincidence that we feel alone in our darkest hours It's no coincidence because those are the times when we have distanced ourselves from God. In our darkest hour, this verse says, we were as good as dead. We were dead in our sins. In John chapter 1 verse 5, it is written, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yes, the world was masqueraded in darkness, but Jesus, the light of the world, would not be quenched. His finest hour was his perfect obedience even to the point of death. The darkness would not overcome him. But I've got another question this morning. What would you say if, if I asked you about your finest hour? Has there been a time in your life when maybe you felt like you were living at your best? Has there been a time in your life when your light shined brightest? Bottom of the ninth, base is loaded, full count, your team's down, three runs, you step up to the plate and you knock one right over the right field fence. Really? Is that your finest hour? Or maybe it's like fourth and in inches, your team, your other team, other team is on the goal line, the state championships on the line, you sack the quarterback and seal the win for the team. Is that your finest hour? Really? It's your wedding day. You think, man, my wedding day is going to be my finest hour, the day when I I marry that girl, the love of my life, or I marry that guy, and we begin our new life together, and and everything's going to be perfect. Is that really your finest hour? I mean, what what does it mean to have a, a finest hour? Those are all great moments in life, right? I mean, I didn't experience any of those with the bases loaded or anything like that. But those are great moments in life. You hit the shot at the buzzer that sealed the win for your team, that's great. But what is it that... What is it when we have a finest hour? What does it really mean? I mean, it's got to be bigger than that, right? Those are great moments. But the greatest moments in life aren't found on the football field. And oh, that more parents understood that. Parents... God's not going to judge your child on how great of a ball player he was. Parents, he's not going to choose, he's not going to judge your daughter on how great she was at basketball. And please understand, I'm not saying this at anybody in particular. And if this one applies to you, I'm saying it to you, but I'm not saying it at you. What are you teaching your child when you let them choose baseball over God? What are you teaching your child when you let them choose a job over God? I'll tell you what you're teaching them. You might not be saying it, but you're teaching it. You're teaching them that other things can come before God, whether it's baseball or friends or money. Is that the message that you want to send? Is that the message that the Lord wants you to send? Well, we need the money. Hey, understand that. But let's make it the other 168 hours of the week. Well, I worked a job too growing up and I know that Here's how you do it. You say, boss, I can work this day and this day and this day and this time. But on Wednesday nights, I go to church. On Sundays, I go to church. Listen, none of us are going to stand before God and talk about the times that we had a no-hitter going into the eighth inning. Nobody's going to do that. Instead, your child is going to stand before God and you're going to stand before God and give account for your faithfulness. For his or her faithfulness. So what is our finest hour? When does that come? Jesus' finest hour came when he surrendered himself in obedience to God. And it wasn't just at the cross. Jesus did this every single day of his life. That was his finest hour. You see, the times when we are at our finest are the times when we surrender ourselves to God. And that's an everyday thing. Every day can be your life at your finest. Our finest hour comes... When we fulfill our purpose. Any hour spent away from God is our darkest hour. But every hour of every day when you surrender yourself in obedience to God is your finest hour. And when that moment comes that you fall away from God and you sin. Your finest hour comes when you go back to God and you surrender yourself in obedience to him once again. As I was putting the finishing touches on the message this morning. I was fortunate enough to stumble upon John chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. We had it read just a few minutes ago. But as we close, I want to show you this passage because it really just, it fits so well. It's just awesome. This is from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So here's a man walking about in darkness. And Jesus' his disciples see him and they decide to kind of start this theological discussion, this little debate. Jesus, look at this pitiful man. Whose fault is it that he's blind? Is it his fault? Is it something he's done? Is it something that his parents have done because of his parents' sin? Why is this man blind? Jesus answers verse 3. It's not, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. I love this story in John chapter 9 because here's a man literally walking about in darkness. Here's a man literally doing that until he meets Jesus. And when he does, his eyes are open to the light and he's never the same. He's the light of the world. He's the only way we'll find our way out of the darkness. We ought to be just like the man in the story. When we find Jesus, we ought to come back seeing We sing about it, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Listen to me very clearly. Everybody's life has a darkest hour, but not everybody's life has a finest hour. Everybody has a darkest hour, but not everybody will have a finest hour. Because not all will follow Jesus. Not all will surrender their lives to Him. Not all people will obey the truth. Not every story has a finest hour. What about yours? What about yours? Are you proud of the way that your story reads right now? If not, well, this could be your finest hour. And just like the man in the story, Jesus told him and tells us that we need to be washed if we will come to Him believing He is the Son of God, confessing His name, and turning away from sin, we can, we can have our sins washed away by the power and the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ and the waters of baptism. You know, they say, they say the night is darkest just before the dawn. The same is true with all of us. First comes our darkest hour, the hour of sin. But then can come our finest hour, the hour of grace. Just think, this very hour could be your finest hour. The hour when you make things right with God. All we have to do is surrender ourselves in obedience to Him. If we can help you in any way.